Remain standing for the gospel lesson, and the gospel lesson is taken from Matthew chapter 16. I will be reading verses 13 through 20. This is the gospel of our Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ, the word of the Lord. Can one uh, be Christian and not believe, believe in or embrace the church? When we say we believe in the church, in what sense are we talking about believing in the church? When the question is raised... Do you believe in the church? What church are you talking about? There seems to be a plethora of churches with so many different approaches and styles. I hope to address these types of questions over the next several weeks and a few others in addition. As I turn to a series of sermons on the church, we're still dealing with the Apostles' Creed. I have jumped to the third paragraph, which starts out, I believe, in the Holy Spirit, because over the course of the last number of weeks, from Palm Sunday, if you will, to uh, Trinity Sunday last week, we dealt with all of the main themes that you really have in the first and second paragraphs of the Apostles' Creed. Now we are on the third paragraph, and on Pentecost Sunday, I preached on the first statement, I believe in the Holy Spirit. What is interesting to, to analyze here is that everything that follows in the third paragraph is belief in the Holy Spirit. And under that affirmation of faith, I believe in the Holy Spirit, is a statement that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church which is a community of the Spirit. And so the creed simply states, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It is expanded, of course, in the Nicene Creed and further elaborated upon in the Westminster Confession of Faith. My text then is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This is a justly famous text and it deals with the establishment of the church by our Lord. 
In this sermon today, I want you to see that the church uh, has been established by Christ and that Christians believe and embrace the church because they believe and embrace its founder, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, of course, uses a metaphor with Jesus as the head and Christian believers as the body. So when we say we believe in the church, the great head and king of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, we also are affirming about something about that institution, which is made up of real life people, uh, just like we are. When we say then that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are embracing an institution of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at this institution in Matthew's gospel. I don't want to get bogged down uh, uh, and, or get in the weeds of things here, but I can't help from uh, dealing uh, to some extent with the text and some of its nuances. But I want you to look then at the passage or listen, as the case may be, of Peter's confession of Christ. And let me just go through the text, uh, commenting on it so that we might apply it. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the location here is important. Why is it important? Well, is it important because uh, Caesarea Philippi, a new name that it received, uh, and uh, it was an ancient uh, place. It's close to the old Israelite city of Dan, uh, in the shadow of the highest mountain in among the Lebanese mountains, that is Mount Hermon. I believe it's the highest, at least it's the most significant. And it usually is always snow-capped. And at the base of that mountain and further, a little further south, uh, this was a famous place or shrine where the Baals offered up uh, their sacrifices, uh, Baal worshippers. It is also a place where the god Pan became, uh, if you will, worshipped, a shrine to the god Pan. And it had a name prior to this that reflected the worship of the god Pan. But now it has been renamed by Herod the Great, who dedicated the city and built a temple there for Caesar. And then, of course, his uh, offspring, uh, not his son, but I believe his uh, nephew's, uh, his uh, uncle's son, or his brother's son, uh, Philip. So it's called Caesarea Philippi. And it's in the shadow of this that Jesus asked this question. Among the pagan shrines, among the history, if you will, <coughs> of the peoples of this region, he asked the question, whom do men say that I am? Now notice how the response comes when Jesus asked that question. They replied, some said John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now this obviously was the way Jesus was being represented during his earthly ministry. Uh, he was uh, considered uh, to be a John the Baptist type or he was considered to be one of the prophets. Uh, he was considered uh, to be an Elijah and the reason, of course, is that they were trying to locate him and understand who Jesus was. But his disciples had been with him, and he raises the question again. Now, I, I don't want to know about what others are saying about me. I want to know what you say about me. 
I want to know what you think of me. Who am I? And um, Peter, of course, being the leader of this little band of disciples of Jesus, answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, notice uh, this text. There is no question that this text has been a battleground, particularly between uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Protestants. Because they all have a stake in this text and how it's interpreted. And the way it's interpreted, of course, will support or buttress a certain understanding of the church. And I must say that all three groupings do not have exactly the same understanding of the church. We will deal with that in the course of this. But there is no question that the church is found, founded upon the truth that Peter confessed. I'm going to say more about this, and it may disturb some of you in the direction I take it. But let me affirm straight up that this truth that Peter confessed must be a basis for the church. It must be. Jesus Christ is the great head and king of the church. Paul over and over calls him the head. And of course, if he is the head, uh, then likewise, that affirmation that he is the Christ is all important for the establishment of what is to follow. And furthermore, when we confess that Jesus Christ uh, is the Lord and and we recognize, and the apostles did, that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. He holds everything together. And so who Jesus is and what he did for us is the foundation for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is, God in human flesh, who he is, the one who went to the cross and died for us, who he is, the one who was raised from the dead, who he is, that one who was raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father. All of these things are important truths, and without these truths, and without the church being founded upon these truths, we have no church. Indeed, we have no Christianity. But that's not the whole of the story here. It's an interesting way that the text runs here. There's some wordplay here between Peter and Rock. So let me say outright that the church is also founded upon Peter. Now, does that trouble you? It troubles some Protestants, and it bothers them a great deal. But generally speaking, I think there is a Christian consensus, particularly today, as you read through this text, that yes, the church is founded upon Peter, but not just Peter alone. Let me read Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll start at verse 19 of this wonderful passage. You see, in the Nicene Creed, it also says that, the church, that we confess not only a holy church and a Catholic church, we confess an apostolic church. And in this passage of Scripture in chapter 2, there is a very, very important passage of Scripture. And I would like to just simply read verses 19 through 22. The Apostle Paul says, Consequently... 
you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, what is God's household? Of course, the church. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The church is built on Peter, and particularly as the spokesman and representative of the early disciples. He is the one who confesses, and he is the one that Jesus turns to, to show that the church will be founded upon, as well, in addition, human beings who will carry out his ministry. This tells us something about the church right away. Human beings who will carry out the ministry and work of Jesus. And so as we look at this, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Let's go further. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, there's an interesting play here. The word Peter is a word that means rock or stone or pillar. Peter is a pillar of the church. John is a pillar of the church. And to keep up with this passage of Scripture, I would like to turn to Galatians, and I think it's important that I do this today because uh, there are questions that people have. And I don't think that the scriptures are nearly as, if you will, uh, opaque on this matter that some might think. But turn to Galatians chapter uh, 2 again, and let me read from verses 8 through 10. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing again, and he's talking about the church. He says, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Moreover, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars or stones, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognize the grace given to me. They agree that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they ask was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Some exegetes, particularly Protestants, make some deal out of the Greek changing from, if you will, feminine for stone to masculine, to Peter. And um, in that way, they escape, in some sense, the fact that the church is founded upon Peter. But let me say that Jesus did not speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. And those distinctions don't pertain in Aramaic. So all of that is kind of a house of cards. It seems to me the plain truth is, is this, that the church is founded upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but it is also founded upon the prophets and the apostles, giving it continuity with the Old Testament, 
prophets, and the apostles, and their teaching. They play a special role in the foundation of the church. And as we shall see later on in another sermon, to confess that we belong to an apostolic church made of flesh and blood, who have inherited a ministry from Jesus to carry it on from generation to generation, is absolutely crucial to Christians' understanding of what God is doing in the world. And so we can kind of cut through all of these denominational polemics by simply bringing in Paul and other places in the scripture that talk about the church being founded upon not only Peter, but the apostles. Also, we believe in a holy and Catholic church. If you read carefully that passage uh, in uh, Ephesians, the church is called holy. Now, the church is not holy because of its members. Now, some of you live better lives than others. Some of you clearly live very good lives. But in the scheme of things, pertaining to God's standards, we all fall short of his glory. The holiness of the church does not reside in its members or its leaders. The holiness of the church resides in that text by the fact that God is with us and dwells among us in the church. It is Christ who is present immediately in his church as we assembled here today. Christ assembled with us immediately. That is, no mediation. He's here by his spirit. Now, he is also here, as we shall see, in the preaching of the word of God and in the sacraments. That's mediated presence. But all of us can rest assured that when we gather together in the name of Christ by the power of the spirit, Jesus himself is with us. The holiness of the church resides in the one who has established his church, and he is present with us. That it's Catholic. That's a wonderful word. There's not quite a word quite like it. We have to keep that word and teach people what it means. The word Catholic means not simply universal, though the church is universal. It has it has uh, people all around the world. That's why we are to pray for those who are persecuted. That's why we are to pray and to uh, send out missionaries to help and to secure places of uh, gospel preaching and to, to heal the sick and do the works that Jesus did. That's a wonderful idea, but the word Catholic not only means those who are present on the face of the earth now, but all those who've died and gone on before. You know, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the last picture, we will be gathered with the saints of all time. Those who've gone on before and those who will come in the future. So the word Catholic is more than just universal. It's talking about the whole family of God, all the members who ever lived. But it's talking that more than just people. As we'll see in a moment, God has given a ministry to the church. We have the gospel. It's part of the Catholic church. The preaching and the worship of God, in a certain way, it's part of the Catholic Church. The baptism with which we baptize with, that is part of the Catholic Church. The Lord's Supper, which we observe, that is part of the Catholic Church. These things are important. They make up the church, which we call Catholic. In the Old Testament, the church was primarily ethnic. In the New Testament, 
the church is Catholic. It has expanded its horizons. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are the arms of the great head and king of the church who ministers through his people to the world. What a great institution this is. What a great and wonderful establishment Christ has made. But the church, of course, uh, has, uh, has authority. It has privileges. And one of the great privileges that we have as Christians is that the church has authority. In this text, it talks about the keys. Look at it. When he asks, he says, who shall say that I am? He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. The church is a divine institution. And I tell you that you are Peter, or rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people, when they hear of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, they think of the, the keys of the kingdom in, in popular jokes that people tell when you appear before the gates of St. Peter. And when you appear before the gates of St. Peter, I suppose in this scenario, he has the key and he's either going to let you in or dismiss you. That really is not what the keys are about. The word key here is really not defined as such. But it becomes quite obvious what the keys are to the kingdom. They're related, for instance, in Matthew's gospel at to the very end. Some of you know about the Great Commission. And at the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives the Great Commission. Here's what he says. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's uh, comforting to know that the great head and king of the church has all authority. But notice what he is going to do as he ascends on high. Therefore, to his disciples, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What is the key? Are the keys? The keys are the preaching and teaching of the gospel. It opens up the gate of heaven. Every time the word of God is preached, the good news of Christ, the gates of heaven in some sense are being opened up. It's not only my privilege to do that in a regular way, in the ordinary ministry of the church, it is your privilege wherever you are today or tomorrow or the next day. The keys have been given to the church. Moreover, we see P Peter exercising that key when he gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the first Christian sermon. He opens up. The kingdom of heaven. Moreover, in the text here, baptism is a key. 
We have the privilege, if you will, admitting people to the church and identifying them as Christians. It's our prerogative to baptize, not the world. No state has a right to baptize. No individual Christian, even privately as such, has a right to baptize. It's given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to serve the Lord's Supper. These are those things, if you will, which unlock the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and we receive its blessings. It is the ordinary ministry of the church. We have authority to minister in the name of Christ. And we do it through God-appointed means. Moreover, what kind of authority is this? Well, it is ministerial and declarative. People sometimes get angry at the church. And in the past and even today, churches will, if you will, overreach in their authority. And they will bind the conscience of people by making extra laws. But let me say, the authority of the church is simply to minister in Jesus' name and to declare the scriptures. It is ministerial and it is declarative. We cannot go beyond the scriptures, but we must not go under the scriptures either to teach all that God has commanded us in Christ Jesus. The church has authority to bind and to loose. That is a rabbinic formula. It has a special meaning. But what it means is that the church has a right to set its own standards and to say what is right and what is wrong, what is morally right and what is morally wrong. We do not get our standards from the world. We get our standards from the great head and king of the church. There's one final thing here. It's a wonderful passage. The Lord says here, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Now, I don't know of a passage that is more comforting to a minister than this one. You know, sometimes the work is going well, sometimes it doesn't go so well. Sometimes things are going swimmingly, and we very easily equate success in the ministry in almost every area of life by how much money we get, how many people we get. Now, I don't say those things are insignificant. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the church should always grow and the church should always be supported. But the one thing that is most reassuring is that the church does not depend upon me. It depends upon the Christ who is in our midst and who is building his church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? Well, the word hell here is the word for Hades. It's translated in some of the readings that you heard today. It means that death will not overcome or overtake the church. I'm reading a book. I got about two chapters through it. and My daughter grabbed it from me. And now she has it in uh, North Carolina. But I got two chapters of the book read. It's called Why, Why, Nations, Why Civilizations or Nations Fall. Civilizations rise and fall. Nations rise and they fall. In every case, death overtakes a nation. It decays and dies from within or maybe eliminated from without. 
That's the ordinary experience in history. Things come and they go. Well, in a sense, the church comes and it goes, but let me say, it comes into being at the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it will go out of being when we are all presented to him, if you will, before the triune God in heaven. And in between, nothing. No wayward minister. No schism in the church. No amount of persecution. No amount of ignorance and stumbling and falling will keep the church from being the church until Jesus comes. That is a great comfort. And you are part of this society. It is a privilege indeed. I close with this. Some of you know that Redeemer Broadcasting is coming into being to try to replace something of the failed ministry of Harold Camping. And if you don't know who he is, you're blessed. Uh, unfortunately, some of us do, and we've listened to him on the radio at times for years, and in times past, he was fairly sound. But he has rejected the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a B in his bonnet. It is that God is no longer using the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he is not even sure that in the present age that God's even saving anyone. Wow, what a narrow vision. Those are not just uh, the things you put on horses. I don't know what you call them right off. These are blinders. His vision hasn't just simply been narrowed. He has no vision. He's not a minister, by the way. He's an engineer, electrical engineer. He founded these radio stations across America. They're worth millions upon millions of dollars. He has squandered his opportunity. My friend, when you reject the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may very well be rejecting its head. That's why the church is so important to Christ. He has ordained that his work be carried on in this world from generation to generation through people like you and me. And nothing that we face will ever, ever extinguish the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is in our midst. Amen.